incredibly happy to have Carmine Miranda, who is a unique musician in so many ways. This is a guy who you think you know what you're going to get. It's not that. It's way more. And uh, I was recently introduced to him because I was asked to write a piece for him, which was, you know, a fantastic honor for me and tons of fun. So uh, this is just a great, great opportunity for all of us to hear a great artist and also a guy I mean, I have to start with saying what's really unexpected about you is this whole EDM raving crazy disco maniac. So tell me a little bit about, I'm going to start with, without the cello, just how did you get into EDM and tell me what you're doing with it? Because it's unusual. Good morning, uh, Richard. Uh, first of all, the, the, the honor is mutual and, and uh, it's such a pleasure to be on your podcast. So thank you very much for inviting me this morning yeah you know that is a uh question that i that i do get asked a lot you know yes electronic dance music plus uh the cello you know uh, where is the connection there uh you know i think uh, you know i have to talk a little bit about my father because my father <clears throat> was a um a collector of you know of records so he loved records uh you know when when he was younger uh had a huge vinyl collection of you know everything you could possibly imagine you know and so i was introduced to uh diverse uh, musical styles uh actually believe it or not rock and roll first before i started actually knowing about uh classical music uh -huh. and so you know uh growing up uh particularly in the later parts of the of the 90s you know electronic dance music started becoming a, a popular or a more popular genre uh yes. you know during that time and so it just kind of sparked my interest because i i also had well you know when i started playing when i started music altogether i just started with a little synthesizer you know and uh and i started music uh by ear basically you know i would just play play by ear and and uh, and I love my synthesizers, and so I, you know, when I would hear electronic dance music, I couldn't just believe what the the amount of uh, flexibility and 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 what you could do with so many, you know, so many synthesizers at once. And so that's kind of what started my my passion for it. But then, as I became more knowledgeable uh, in the in the realm of classical music, um, you know, I started realizing that wow, you know, that the, the differences are not that many there are actually more similarities and differences you know particularly electronic dance music where it's all about uh there's a certain minimalistic quality to it right and 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 a certain repetitiveness that changes meaning according to what harmonic progression you're choosing every time and then, yes uh you know the whole thing about building 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 tension building tension and then releasing and then you know so you know, th these are um, uh, these are values that are very similar to what, you know, composers have always done in the classical sense, you know, Indeed. And so, uh, I, I, I would like to pride myself for being one of those guys where uh, musicians where I don't I don't necessarily look at music as a um, you know for a particular genre only but uh, for what it is you know yes. well-written music is well-written music indeed regardless of the genre absolutely know? I worked for many many years for the Pet Shop Boys oh and, and I did loads and loads of records with them and and lots of hits but yeah. the interesting thing was they they hired me to come in and put crazy orchestras over the top of the EDM, because right. so, they, they were basically EDM, you know, they were a disco artist. But, right. but what they wanted was, as you say, the possibilities of the dynamics and color mm -hmm. of that, there's this monotonous beat going through which is necessary for people to be on the dance floor and we we can't forget i mean i was around at the birth of the disco era and and you know i watched 
the guy and I knew a lot of DJs, old old style DJs, and they'd say, "Man, you know, if you want to get them on the dance floor, you can play all this crazy stuff and these remixes. But man, if you want to get them on the dance floor, just put on Earth, Wind, and Fire." <laughs> you know, they're they're yeah. So so it was an interesting thing. So then the Pet Shop Boys came to me and they they said, "What we want is we want we've got this basis of." all the way through, you know, but what we want is the color and the, and the majesty of what an orchestra can do. And that's what I did on, on tracks like left to my own devices and, and go West and all of that stuff. So it sounds to me that those are the uh, qualities and, and concepts that you're applying to it as well. That's exactly right. So I, um, primarily write in a subgenre, uh, modern sub, relatively modern sub subgenre within electronic dance music called, uh, popularly called New Disco uh, or French Touch, which is a revival oh. of the uh, music of the 80s and 70s, particularly the 70s. You know, disco music um, uh, really started out as R&B. You know, it was well, of course, and then and then and then it kind of evolved into into disco. And then, you know, what I always found fascinating about that particular time and period is the great collaborations with with strings. You know, I mean, you, you can't have disco without strings, right? right. I mean, upper strings, violin licks, you know, here and exactly, there. Exactly. So, exactly. That that was I mean, really, that was my stock in trade for so many years because I started in 1975. I worked with people like Gloria Gaynor, you know, and I mean, that's that's a great string arrangement. Uh, I didn't do it, but it's a great string arrangement. And, uh, you know, that that's a, that was a fun period to be done. And, and you know, there's some unbelievable tracks of that period. Native New Yorker was a great track. Um, yeah, it has a solo by Michael Brecker, but I'm going to just throw that in. But uh, anyway, so getting back to your thing. So what do classical you know the sort of stuffed shirts of classical music think of you doing this you know uh that's an interesting that's an interesting question i i think that nowadays uh you know th things are changing times are changing i think a couple you know i would say more than 10 years ago 15 years ago uh if you were a classical musician and you know, uh, you know, you you wrote uh, or delved into that this particular genre. Maybe I think it, it it would carry a certain stigma with it. You know, by particularly the the older generation. Uh, but I oftentimes find that the best musicians in the world, regardless of their generation, uh, all young, you know, middle age, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're able to understand, you know, this very a basic principle that we all share in common, which is, you know, great writing, great music is great music, regardless, you know, Indeed. and, 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 and sometimes actually the best collaborations and the best collaborators and people that have, have been able to, um, you know, enjoy playing uh, alongside have been the greatest listeners and, and, and they have, uh, you know, quite a, a pretty open, open mind, you know, so, yes. uh, and this is what I teach my students, you know, um, it, it, as a musician nowadays, uh, particularly the way that music has evolved, and will continue evolving, you know, you have to be able to be, ver uh, have a certain versatility, yes, and, and be able to, uh, you know, approach uh, different musical styles and really truly understand you know what makes because I mean if you really think about it right if, if we get really philosophical um Let's I, do that. I, I saw I saw a meme the other day on 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 TikTok you know some 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 people send me these these funny TikToks and uh, there was one that that said you know Vivaldi is the ultimate uh, EDM, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's true, producer, right? Because I mean, like, if, if you listen to Vivaldi, it's all about creating tension, 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 yes, move, you know, build and then again, release of tension, so on and so forth. So, yes, again, these are, these are <laughs> principles that have been, um, uh, you know, uh, exemplified throughout history. It's yes. just that uh, nowadays we're using slightly different sets of. Uh, instrumentations, you know. Yes, so. yes, and and the thing about you is that because of your upbringing, you have a very 
wide frame of reference. And what I find with students in general is that when they come to me, they have a very small frame of reference. They know, a, you know, their own era and they know the music of maybe five years ago, but that's it. And they have no, and it's sad because when I was a kid, I got this class, which was called music appreciation. And mm -hmm. every day the, 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 the teacher would just come in and he'd say, this is Bach, right. this is Bill Evans, right. this is rock and roll. This is this is Bill Haley. This is so and we'd get all this different music and we and he'd say, if you like it, listen to more of it. And it was a genius thing to have as a kid, because it, it opened you up to the fact that there's all these different kinds of candy that you can enjoy. And I think that very much uh, sounds like what has influenced you. And that sounds like your attitude, because you grew up with so much and you didn't get rid of any of it. You said, well, this is kind of good for this. And so one one thing I want to ask leading on from that, mm -hmm. <clears throat> when I listen to you play, mm -hmm. I hear somebody who really understands groove. Now, <laughs> you know, the EDM thing is one thing, but what I'm saying is, and we talked about this when I spoke to your students, most classical musicians, and especially when I started out in the studios, uh, I would get these string sections and they had no idea of how to play 16th notes in time mm -hmm. because classical musicians learn phrasing. Mm -hmm. So it would be instead of ticka 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 ticka, it's you know, and it's terrible for dance music and it's not, you know, or for rhythm based music, but you really know how to do it. And I've heard you, you know, on the various types of cla classical music that you've played, your time is fantastic. So because there's always this inner uh, kind of undercurrent of groove that's always there. Now, tell me if that's a conscious thing or it's just you. It's a very conscious thing. It's, uh, it's an absolutely conscious thing. And, and this is what I, you know, uh, it's a big pet peeve of mine when I hear uh, musicians, uh, regardless of their genre, you know, uh, perform and, you know, and they're, they're phrasing things beautifully, but, you know, things are not quite lined up the way that it, that it, that it should be. Uh, I think that uh, because of the innate nature of these, these instruments, any, any kind of instrument that produces sound, uh, we have a tendency to primarily focus on the sound, primarily focus on the tone. But uh, what, uh, you know, really we, we need to be concentrating as a musician is on both, right? Both aspects, the, the tone that is important, uh, the phrasing, <clears throat> but, uh, but also the uh, rhythmic aspects of, uh, of playing a in a particular style. Uh, just to give you an example, um, going back again to the Baroque time, you know, you want to talk about the original jazz players, you know, those, those were, those were the guys. I mean, Absolutely. you know, there was a lot of improvisation involved, <clears throat> excuse me, but also uh, rhythm was a, a very important component of it, particularly in the Italian tradition of playing. Uh, that was popularized by Venice, you know, by composers like Vivaldi. Again, not to bring, you know, bringing Vivaldi back into the into the picture, but bring him back anytime you like. These are composers that understood a, a very simple principle that I think carries or carried throughout time, even in, in modern in, in our current time, which is uh, what I always tell my students that the um, the mark of a great composer is always that person who can uh, create a level of complexity with the simplest possible concept. And so, you know, these guys during the Baroque essentially were experimenting with, with very basic, simple concepts such as harmony and rhythm. And how can we, essentially, how could they create a, uh, a level of complexity uh, in in the performance with these two uh, markers. And so, you know, I think that one of the uh, uh, most important markers when it comes to style, it's really determined by the rhythm. It's determined by, 
uh, the rhythm and the pulse, which is two completely different things, right? Yes, indeed. Rhythm, the other thing is pulse. And so, uh, uh, you know, most of the best musicians that I've always, again, you know, collaborated with, uh, we're very well aware of this. You know, these two, from a rhythmical standpoint, uh, these two, uh, you know, great components of music, which is rhythm and pulse, and not to be confused with, uh, with, with the two. And so, yeah, you know, uh, I think that uh, then if, if you want to get even more specific, you know, uh, the sound of each composer, the sound of each, uh, let's just call it in modern times, the sound of each producer, everyone has yes. a, a sound that they gravitate towards or a certain uh, particular ses, uh, rhythmic uh, set, set of rhythms that they, they gravitate towards. And so for us, the performers, we're supposed to, uh, you know, be aware of these, you know, these components so that we can speak, in essence, in the language of that person that has written that particular composition. Yes, indeed. And, and I know that, for instance, I mean, if we expand this concept a little bit, because I, I know that you're a big fan of guitar guys and Yvingi yeah. Malmstein, who I pronounced wrong, but, you know, for instance, I would love to hear you playing a little bit of Paganini in the style of Malmstein. <laughs> you know what well, I mean? Because I, I think there's a relation between the two, don't you? Yeah, well, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, um, that's the kind of uh, essentially uh, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the Malmsteins, the the Steve Vai's of you know of, of today yes. are are the Paganini's of, of back in the day. You know, the Piatti's were us cellists, and so I have a great deal of admiration for these these guys. You know, I think that um, we can learn a lot. You know, from from listening, from, from just listening and observing, you know, performances. Uh, it's a great source of, um, of uh, it's a great learning, learning source, which I think, um, you know, with this great bombardment of media that we have today, um, you know, you know, some of the younger generations, of course, struggle, right? But, uh, you know, uh, this is something that, for instance, like Inve Malmsteen, uh, in his playing, you know, he was he was very very much influenced by Bach, by Paganini, by all these classical yes. composers, right? So, you know, these little these little licks that that uh, that he he uh, always uses, you know, so. It's all about those scales. It's all about those those little you know those little licks that yes that that are all also uh, very strong components of uh, compositionally speaking of a composer like Paganini, uh, for instance, right? Indeed, then you have you have a a um, player like Steve Vai. Uh, who, uh, you know, again, I, I learned, uh, you, you see, like, uh, you know, from watching some, some of his interviews, you can learn a lot, you know, uh, he, he talks a lot about his work with Frank Zappa and what he learned with Zappa, which was yes. primarily the importance of having, you know, being able to achieve your own tone, right? And how tone gives you that sense of individuality. This is why, you know, uh, particularly that generation of, in the classical sense, you know, the generation of the 30s, 40s, you know, the golden age of, the golden era of recordings. Yes. You, know, uh, you, you could play just, you can play just a high fits. Uh, I, I, you know, people would be immediately able to recognize the sound or Horowitz in the piano or in the case of cellist, uh, I don't know, you know, Pierre Fournier or Pablo Casals, you know. So in the case of, of Vai, you know, he has these uh, really luscious, he's, he has this really beautiful round tone and this ability to speak, you know, to converse with the, with the guitar. And he's using the guitar as, a, as an extension of his voice, you know. Yes. And he has these really beautiful luscious, you know. Uh, And, and of course, you know, I'm, 
I cannot even uh, attempt to get close to, you know, such a great performer as Vi. But, you know, he has this ability to really be able to sing, yeah. um, which is something that actually I, I always try to uh, teach my students. It applies to classical music as well, because these particular instruments, uh, believe it or not, the guitar is, is a slightly older instrument than the violin family, if, if, we, if we go by technicalities, right? Yeah. So these instruments are distant cousins, you could call it, very, very distant cousins to the guitar. And they yes. were primarily um, created to be able to replace the human voice. Yes. So um, um, what I usually try to teach my kids is that if a composer writes a, a particular phrase and that phrase is meant to have a certain operatic quality to it, uh, then the question that we should always ask first is when it, when it, came, when it comes to interpretation, is how would a singer, how would the human voice uh, interpret uh, a phrase? For instance, the, uh, the first movement of the uh, Schumann cello concerto, right? It starts with a very uh, sad operaic kind of, uh, you know, uh, influence. And, and so, you know, if I were to play the, the, the line, the melodic line, uh, as for face value, it would be it would be something. Right. So if I had to now imitate what a singer would do, it would be something like this. And on that uh, subject of singing, let's take the example of Barry Manilow took the Chopin pre prelude in C minor yeah. and created the song, Could It Be Magic? Right, right. So, so now, now what I'd like you to do, just for fun, is take any melody by somebody like, for instance, could be Chopin, could be Puccini and play that in the way that a great popular music vocalist like Barry Manilow would play it. Putting me on the spot right Yes, now. I am. And I do, <laughs> this is what I do to people. That's why they love you. Uh, let's see. Let's do, let's, let's pick a phrase that is one of my uh, ultimate favorites, which is um, the, which happens in the second movement of the Vorjak cello concerto. And it very much uh, describes uh, exactly what, what it is that you're asking for, which is, uh, you see the Vorjak Cello Concerto, it starts with a, with a theme that the composer uh, creates, which is only a very, very uh, brief theme, only a, a couple of notes, which is, right? So that's it, that's a, that's a theme. Then in the second movement, the composer rearranges this theme in such a way to create that illusion of, of uh, how a singer would, would, would sing something. So... says it all and it's really one of my favorite uh, um, moments in this particular concerto but you find this kind of phrasing pretty much in any kind of you know opera uh, you know yes. opera works uh, but let me point out something else which i think you demonstrated beautifully right there there is a huge difference in conception to the use of vibrato Yes. on string instruments. Absolutely. Now, there's a huge difference in vibrato in 
the use of voice. Now, I've always commented that some singers use what is called pitch vibrato. Yes. And it makes me want to run away and hide under a pillow because it's this constant variation of pitch and they go way overboard and it's annoying and a lot of string players use this thinking it sounds emotional but actually it sounds like what the dog left outside but that, that, you that would, be, that would be the equivalent of of is what you're describing of doing this yeah oh yeah, right? yeah. A, a very, <laughs> a and, very uh, fine line, right? But, but you, now there's the other type of vocal vibrato is what's called, and it's been explained to me by singers, it's called pressure vibrato. In other words, it's volume, it's amplitude vibrato. So in other words, instead of getting lower pitch, higher pitch, lower pitch, it's going louder, softer, louder, softer, and it makes a beautiful sound. And and right. the great singers who have beautiful voices, that's what they use. Now you, of course, the cello, you can't make those little variations in loudness and softness, but I look at your vibrato and you have one of the most beautiful string vibratos I've ever heard. And because I can see what your finger is doing, you've obviously, practice to have just the right amount of it's it's microscopic pitch uh thing but it gives the impression of that vocal uh vocal right and it's just wonderful to listen to that's that's exactly right um uh you know vibrato is one of those things that for us in the in the strings uh instrument realm uh it's a source for uh creating uh, essentially our own tone, you know, and uh, each one of, you know, each one of us has our own concept of vibrato, our own concept of, of tone, right? Uh, and this, of course, is influenced again by our upbringing, by listening to other people, by listening to as much music as possible. Uh, and so, um, so with that said, uh, you know, there is, so for us, we really cannot do it with volume, volume. Um, no, no, no. But what you're doing, the way you figured it do, out. Because essentially what we're doing is we're distorting pitch up and down, up and down. But it's how much you're able to distort pitch in such a way that yes. as you describe it, and this is exactly how I describe it to my students, you know, with certain technical, um, uh, a certain understanding of how the, the body works in the instrument uh, to be able to reduce it in, in such a microscopic uh, level that to the audience is able to come across and you can hear it, right? Yes. So my argue, oh, wow, you know, he was actually using quite a bit of vibrato. But motion-wise, it was it was almost you know it's 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 very 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 microscopic, very yes very, yes, and it's and it's and it's also I'm sure to do with your right hand, your bowing is it's it's not wimpy, it's not you know you're not it's it's assured and it's unbelievably steady, and yeah. so therefore your left hand has the confidence that the right hand is giving it what it needs to to be accurate. Because if your right hand is not happening, your left hand, no matter what you do, is going to sound weak. But man, you've got it. I mean, when I, I hate to compliment you again. Applies, I think that applies to every, uh, every instrument. You know, we, yes. we're always using two hands. Yes, yes. So I, I think that even for guitarists, I mean, there's some guitarists that have the most amazing and excellent in picking, whether it is through picking or whether it is through, you know, uh, uh, nail contact with the string. Right. Uh, you know, really what we're all trying to do is trying to get as comfortable as we can with these guys, right? With these, with these instruments sure. and, and convey this to the, uh, to the public. Well, one of the things that I think is very clear to anybody who hears you play for 15 seconds is that you have a very uh, controlled emotion uh, in the playing. In other words, you're very aware of exactly what emotion you're going to uh, express with the music. Oh, don't put that away yet. Oh, no, no, because I'm going to really torture you now. Your control of emotion is so wonderful to listen to and your uh, understanding of the music 
And you've obviously, I'm going to start with asking you how you analyze a piece of music. In other words, I know that you will not just pick up the music, slap it in front of you and start playing. You, you really research the music and you go into it. So tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah, that's, 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 uh, again, a, a very good, uh, excellent point. So in my case, and I think in the case of every, uh, you know, musician that wants to truly understand what it is that they're playing, uh, has, it involves a process of, of research, of finding out uh, a certain amount of history uh, and a certain amount of history about the composer and the writer. So in the case also uh, of uh, composers where uh, we really don't have videos. We really, you know, composers were, you know, uh, Baroque, uh, classical composers, even some composers of the Romantic period that uh, all we have is just written records, you know. Uh, there is a certain historical research that has to, has to be uh, accomplished in order to understand, uh, you know, a, a certain principle, which is what I also like to uh, tell my students that, uh, regardless of the place and time, oftentimes a composer is influenced by their surroundings, you know, by historical events that are happening and also events that are happening, personal events that are surrounding the composer's life. And so, you know, if you see what we do more as an actor and a script, you know, an actor, a really, really fine actor, the first thing that they do is they do research, right? On that particular yes. character on that particular uh, you know, personality that they're trying to embody on film, in film. So we, we have to be able to do the same thing. Uh, and so, uh, yes, uh, I, uh, one of the first things that I do even before uh, you know, placing a finger or playing a note on, on, the, on the cello is do a very heavy amount of historical research on on these particular composers and try to understand you know the the psychology right the psychology of that particular person because as human beings we really haven't changed much historically right we keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again and and you know we we have the same habits right and so there is this kind of misconception particularly in in classical music that you know, we see these these people as these two-dimensional pictures, you know, in, in paintings, but we have to realize that they were, you know, they were alive, you know, they were human beings at one point, they had feelings, they, yes. you know, they, they had issues, they had insecurities, yes. who knows? So that's that, you know, for those composers that we don't have access to uh, yes. times, right, access to being able to meet with them. Yes, yeah, sadly, I don't have Bach on Radio Richard. Right, unfortunately, right, <laughs> and so and so, what we always have to ask ourselves as musicians is, what would Bach do, right? What would uh, you know again Chopin do? What would Haydn do? You know, we have to be able to put ourselves in in their shoes and ask always these questions. You know, how would they like to hear this phrase? You know, uh, or this particular you know musical section. In the case of of contemporary composers, it makes it a little bit easier because you can ask them, right? You can talk to them. Hey, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell tell me about your life. You know, what is what is the story? What what kind of story are you trying to uh, convey? You know, yes. this particular composition. You know, and yes. so it makes it a lot easier in that regards. You know, yes, and and that's an interesting point because I'm really looking forward to coming and working with with you on my piece. And one of the things that I enjoy doing so much is hearing from the player when the player says well you know you could do this line this way mm -hmm. or what would it be like if i did this or what if i put the mute on for this section or you know and and then i i, I turn around and say wow what a great idea or no because x but there's a dialogue now you seem to create that dialogue yourself with the older composers who are long gone well, believe it or not, there is the, the, there is a way of being able to figure out these because you know again that relationship between performer and composer 
hasn't really changed much. And, and oftentimes, regardless, again, of the time period, you know, you're, you're dealing with a very specific kind of mind, you know, the, the composer's mind, the, the writer's mind, you know, there's a certain creative process that happens yes. uh, that uh, as a performer, uh, that relationship between performer and composer, well, first of all, I have to begin by saying that performers and composers at one point were kind of interchangeable. Yes. You know, a lot of, a lot of uh, performers used to compose and a lot of composers used to perform. Yeah, sure. Mozart, Pagan. In modern times, in classical music, split for some reason, it kind of just went, went into two separate directions. You have the performer that is, that it's really, you know, working a ton of hours to be able to perfect, you know, uh, certain elements of, of a particular composer. And you have the same happening in, in composition as well. With that said, you know, what, uh, we have is we have records where we can read about certain composers. You know, you have composers that were very open-minded and accepting of, say, that the cellist in the time yes. that was premiering a particular concerto, yes. of their suggestions. Then you have certain composers that you have on record saying, you know, do not change a single thing in my composition. I like it the way it is. In the case of the, uh, we have, for instance, you know, the Tchaikovsky's uh, variations, variations on a Rococo uh, theme, uh, in which uh, the uh, cellist that premiered the, the, the work changed the arrangement uh, and added a couple of things, you know, of the, let's just call it the, the movements in between. Yes. Well, Tchaikovsky got incredibly mad about this. You yes. Know? Yes. <laughs> so, and so we have records, you know, that kind of composer that, takes pride in, in, you know, in, in the work that he has done, uh, wants his work to be respected, to be, you know, interpreted a certain way. Yes. There's not too much to it. This is exactly what he wants. Now, yes. there's some composers that, that we know, you know, took a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, some feedback in the case of uh, Shostakovich, let's just say, mm. recordings, you know, with, with Shostakovich playing. Sure. sure. Playing and then he would be playing with a cellist, but then he would be doing the same the same thing with another cellist, and you would have two very different interpretations. So this, this gives you a good idea of what uh, what uh, Shostakovich was probably like as a as a person and as also as a as a composer. And probably odds are that he was open minded and respected the opinion of, of, of those particular performers. Right. So, right. And it, and and his opinion may have changed when he said, hey, this guy is a di very different player than the guy I used last month. I'd right. like to try it like this with him. Right. And I'm sure that's very true. So you when you're playing a, a classical piece of something that was written in the 1700s, mm -hmm. you have to open yourself up to the possibility that if you were standing there, with the composer, he might see you and say, hey, you know, Carmine, it would be really hip if you did it this way. And right. because because you have to, because that's the way. Uh, and, and it's and the other question I've always wondered about uh, is tempo. Now, I've heard classical pieces played at wildly different tempos on records. You know, that's really, I suppose, down to the conductor a lot. But how do, how do they choose tempos or how would you choose tempos like for instance a piece that's i mean bach do we really know what tempo he, he, he did his stuff at so that, that's a very good question uh so there are different schools of thoughts when it comes to um tempi and uh, but before that i i would like to kind of just talk about the importance of of tempi first and why people emphasize so much you know and or certain people can be even very, very specific about the tempo that they're choosing, you know, uh, to the decimal, let's just say, right? So a, the character of a piece can always change according to the tempo that you're, you're choosing to play that piece. So it, it changes, let's just, you know, for, for, for the viewers, uh, it changes meaning. You know, a faster piece is not going to have necessarily the, the same kind of meaning as a, as a slower piece. With that said, uh, 
um, there are two schools of thoughts, right? They're, they're the school of thought in which a, an interpreter uh, reads the, uh, the, 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 the tempo that the composer is writing on the page and they, you know, and they, they treat it like it is the word of God. And then there's the other school of thought in which the performer um, takes the tempo marking as a guideline. And so, you know, there's always this co constant uh, conversation between these two school of thoughts. You know, I happen to be uh, the kind of performer who, uh, you know, unless the composer, unless we know we're playing uh, the music of a composer that is very highly specific, um, I tend to, uh, you know, be a little bit more open-minded about the tempo markings and and how we are supposed to be interpreting those tempo markings as performers. You know, I, I typically use them as guidelines. Yes, yes. And this yeah. is the case for Baroque music. Why? Yeah. You know, if, if you look at the progression of composition throughout time, uh, once we start getting into the Baroque period, right, uh, pretty much all the way till the early, maybe middle classical uh, classical period, Compositions were, weren't really, you know, compos composers weren't really heavily marking dynamics, weren't heavily marking tempi or, 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 or articulations, you know, they were more uh, general guidelines, yes. even more so during the Baroque. But why? I, I, the reason is because these composers understood that the performers would, would have a certain level of insight to be able to uh, read in between the lines and to be able to understand based on the melody, based on the harmonic writing that the composer is writing, you know, there is a certain understanding of, okay, you know, this particular harmony, this particular tempo feels good at this particular, uh, this particular harmony and, and, and melody feels good yes. at this particular tempo. Yes. And so, and so, you know, most of the time, you know, those really, really great composers, e even during the Romantic era, we can, we can say, you know, there are those composers that were not very specific about tempo markings, but for a very good reason. And this is the reason, because they were expecting the performer to be able to understand uh, there is a certain obvious component about uh how they're writing a piece, what kind of material that they're writing, where the inclusion of tempo becomes a little bit more obvious. We are getting into, you know, 20th century work, serialistic uh, music. Yes. That's when things get a little bit more precise. Why? Because, uh, you know, composers during this time were going through an experimental process, compositionally speaking. Indeed. And so, and so they were experimenting with concepts of precision, precision of sound. There's a certain precision of tone that is required, you know, extended techniques that, that require a certain yes. kind of, you know, so, so the emphasis is given towards precision, where before it, the emphasis was given more towards uh, interpretation. Yes. And then, and then if you add the other component into the mix, which is the same thing that you just said, which is, you know, we could be playing, you know, I could be playing a piece for you and you might have a particular uh, idea of how this piece, how you want this piece to, to sound under my fingers. But if you, if another cellist were to play this piece, maybe you might hear it a different way and you might realize, hey, you know, sure, I, I can also, I can also hear it this way. Yes. Well, one of the things that you've said a lot, but one of the things that you've said is that music is a conversation. Yeah. Uh, and I really love that because music is a conversation between you and the composer. It's a conversation between you and your fellow musicians who are playing it. Right. It's a conversation between you and the conductor. So people, I think, do, you've pointed this out, that people lose sight of that. And once you realize that, you realize that it's, it's more of a human thing. Yeah. Going back to the, the, the principle that, you know, these instruments were created to replace a human voice. We don't have lyrics, right? Yes, exactly. So all we have is, we, all we have is, is, is notes, is musical Indeed. notes. There was this switch historically where, where music 
went from being primarily vocal or the emphasis was vocal to instrumental. Mm. And so, you know, uh, essentially what these composers were, were trying to do and are still trying to do is create a certain dialogue. Yes. Between, between these instruments, these constant melodic ex exchanges, this give and take of, of, of material. Yes. That we see this displayed not only in classical music, but, you know, and we, we see it in rock and roll, we see it in jazz, we see it in sure just every any other even in electronic dance music believe it or not you know yes yes so so, uh, so yeah that's that's a very good very very good point and this is a very important uh, thing to always be aware of as a performer is that without sounding super cheesy is that we are we are essentially speaking a language of course know, when when we're playing music and and that language needs to needs to not only be intelligible but we need to be able to, um, you know, to speak it and also listen at the same time. It's yes. constant back and forth. And one of the things which I'm, I'm now going to actually ask you to pick up the cello because I have, I have a game okay. which I, I make musicians play. And it's, oh called, my goodness. and it's called the happy sad game. Okay. Now, now the thing is the happy, the way the happy sad game works, and I, I can't wait to do this with you because you are such a, brilliant expressor of emotion is I ask a musician to take one melody and it can be anything you like, some little well-known melody, eight bars of it, whatever, and play it the same melody because I'm always interested in people talk about what is melody. I've just written a book called What is Melody? And, and so to take a melody and play it in completely different emotions. So I, I'm gonna ask you to, to choose any melody, something eight or 16 bars, something like that. And first of all, I want you to play it, tell us what the melody is gonna be and then play it in an incredibly happy way. Let me pick uh, something that is might be very obvious for a lot of cellists. The uh, uh, first movement of the Haydn cello concerto in C major. Uh, so this is again, uh, C major, it can get any happier than this, right? Okay. The, the, the key of C. So, um, want you to do it incredibly sad depressed you're ready to throw yourself off brooklyn bridge very so, sad so within context this this particular melody here so uh in a minor tonality sounds ridiculous right <laughs> no, no, it's not ridiculous at all okay. now i want you to play the same piece and the emotion is feeling groovy so i want you to play it with a kind of a groove maybe even an edm type of groove but the same piece let's see if i can try you the word is drunk now i know oh, you, i know i know you've never drunk alcohol but just imagine <laughs> what it's like to be completely drunk playing this piece um. Thank you. 
I'm going to do? And this is the little this is philosophical angst. Okay, mm. so so this is really deep. This is where uh, tempo tempo can make a huge uh, a huge impact. So this is a good good example of. Um... I think I like that one best. <laughs> so, so that was the happy sad game, and and you can and uh, you can use that with your students. It's a good fun thing to open up people's minds, and and I I love the fact that I've been able to show my Radio Richard audience the some of the sonic possibilities and emotional possibilities of the cello, which is such a fantastic instrument and an even better instrument in your hands. So so. So Carmine, I'm so grateful that you've, you've come on the show and I, I know we've got a lot more to talk about. I've got about 50 more questions to talk to you about, but we'll do that another time. But, but for today, thank you so much. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure, Richard. It is always good to see you every time. You know, we have uh, so many things in common to always, you know, to always talk about, but, uh, yeah, this has been really fun. I love, I love the game and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, I hope that, that, uh, your listeners, um, you know, liked our, our, uh, conversation and thank you again, uh, Great, thank Carmine. You all, all of your listeners and, uh, we'll, we'll catch up soon, uh, some other time. Thank you. Fantastic. Radio Dum Dum Radio, always at Richard Niles. Radio Richard Radio, Radio Richard. Radio Richard!